This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. I'm Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and welcome to the second How to Love Lit podcast. Just to remind you, this podcast is for anyone who ever sat through a lit class and thought, why am I reading this as they cram down spark notes, or actually read the book and misses it. It's for everyone who ever read a story and thought a character sounded like a person you studied in psychology class, or just was interested in the idea that people are always 100% goal-directed 100% of the time and have always been so. And good writers are innately the first to understand this. In the end, we hope to engage your mind little, but not so much that you have to slow down your run. We hope to engage your heart in a way to make you laugh and understand the world as one never-changing but always-changing kind of a place. Last week, we introduced The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We talked about the historical context. We read almost sentence by sentence, chapter one. We introduced some of the main ideas and the first important symbol of the book, which, if you recall, is nature, and which we talked about in a significant way is an actual character in the story. That's right. And this week, we're jumping into chapters two through eight. We're going to talk about the first scaffold scene and also begin our discussion about the characters. So, Christy, what is so great about Hester Prynne and Little Pearl? And the answer is so much. But let's start talking about Chapter 2, and we'll just kind of go through it uh, the way Hawthorne goes through it. Chapter 2, Chapter 1 kind of introduced the men in the community. And Chapter 2 introduces the women, which I I think it's interesting uh, that the, the first female character that we're introduced to is a witch, or at least they think she's a witch, Mistress Hibbins. Now, Mistress Hibbins is going to be this woman that comes in and out of the story. Uh, he's, she's described as bitter-tempered, and you're told before you even meet her that she's going to be killed on the gallows as a witch, which is only interesting because every time she shows up in the story, she's like the only person that really ever knows what's going on. So she's the first character we meet. And then we're going to meet some women, and ooh, they are some stout, 
ale drinking, well-developed shoulders and bust, bold, rotund women. <laughs> they have a rotundity of speech gotta, among these matrons. You got to love it. Uh, and they're so mean. Again, so mean. And, of course, um, they're all talking about what's fixing to happen. Hester's getting ready to march out of the prison that we saw in the first chapter, and they're going to march her up and put her on the scaffold for everyone to stare at. Because if there's nothing that makes you feel bad about what you've done, you've done it's being stared at. And they're angry. Uh, and they, they call her a hussy, which is like an old-fashioned word for, as the kids say, ho. And, uh, and they're talking about uh, what she's done and what they think should happen to her. And, of course, it all comes down to in the words of one of the Rotan women, this woman has brought shame upon us all and ought to die. So there you have it. The women, the beautifully described hideous women, uh, are standing there really mad, waiting uh, for this scene where a woman is going to come out with her three-month-old baby and be marched in front of all of them so they can scold her with their eyes. So she comes out, and um, the way she's described is not what anybody would have expected her to be described. She's a young woman, tall, perfect elegance, dark and abundant hair, so glossy that it threw off the sunshine with a gleam. And I kind of, you know, in my mind, I don't know if this is how you picture it, think of like those Disney movies when these women kind of <laughs> go back and forth with their hair coming out, and they're just gorgeous and, of course, the sun shines on the A, which is absolutely spectacularly embroidered. and It's called fantastically embroidered and illuminated. And, of course, when everybody sees it, it's like they're put in a spell and they're just staring at it. They gasped at it. And this is kind of the effect that it has on them. Uh, but it, the author points out, and this is where we're going to start talking about her, is... It has the effect of creating a sphere around her. And forevermore, she's going to be, in many ways, alone. Uh, what jumped out at you is, is you read the description of, of these wonderful women and um, Hester as she comes out on out. Well, first of all, I would want to remind everybody that I'm the non-literature person side of this equation and so I don't read it with a lot of the depth and I miss a lot of things so I'm really glad to go through this with uh, with you and your insight but from um, a, an amateur perspective the first thing that stood out to me was the coldness of the crowd and of course the whole chapter he's developing the coldness of the crowd but the attractiveness of Hester and that contrast has really gone into deeply uh, what I found really interesting is how he portrayed the women in the crowd and some of the things that the uh, women were saying, number one of which they say, uh, the magistrates are God-fearing gentlemen but merciful overmuch. That is the truth. In other words, they're criticizing the men in the community. They don't feel like the men have dealt harshly enough with Hester for whatever reasons. Uh, and then they go on to talk about how she's been allowed to turn her scarlet A into some kind of a badge of honor and how that's going to bring condemnation on the crowd and how this woman has brought shame upon us all. And then it goes on to say, then let the magistrates who have made it of no effect thank themselves when their own wives and daughters go astray. 
In other words, they're just working overtime to shame the leadership in the community at that point. So if he wanted to paint them um, as shrews, I, he was successful in my point of view. Yeah, and shame is going to be a big thing uh, throughout the whole book. And it starts off right here. Of course, the f- scaffold is described. It's a platform. And on it, I, I don't know if you've ever seen these things. They have those stocks where people have to put their neck in it. And, and lots of people lost their head in that, or I guess. Uh, they would certainly stand up there a long time with their head in that thing. She doesn't have to do that. She just has to stand up there by herself. So she's standing up there by herself holding a baby, and ironically, it says, had there been a papist among the crowd, and papist is kind of an old-fashioned word, almost a slur, really, for um, Catholics, it says that the crowd, um, had they been Catholic instead of Protestant, may have mistaken her for one other um, single woman with a baby, uh, none other than, of course, the divine maternity. So she kind of looks like the Virgin Mary up there. Uh, by herself. The scene, they say, was not without a mixture of awe. The other thing to point out is that it's super quiet. Once she gets up there, um, it's quiet. She's all alone, and the quietness is heavier than if there had been somebody screaming out at her. And so as as a psychology person, what do you make of the fact that for the next two pages... He uses this opportunity to talk about what happens in her mind. And in her mind, she kind of goes back and she reviews everything that's ever happened to her in her life that brought her to this point. Well, whether it's a literary point or a psychological point, shame is undoubtedly really significant uh, as I'm reading this. And he goes into great detail to talk about how she is internally processing her sense of shame in front of this crowd of people. And if I understand it correctly, she, part of her punishment is to stand there for three hours and allow the, the public to deride her or look at her or say whatever they wish. And so she's internally creating the, the space in her mind for how she's going to withstand the public shame. And I thought it was really interesting because the chapter ends with this whole idea that she had... Uh, buttressed herself to deal with the shame in the moment, but the big problem was going to come later on when the crowd wasn't around and she was aware of that. So anyway, shame is a huge deal. We're going to get into that more in later chapters and how people process that and why it's such a powerful, powerful force. One thing that really strikes me at the end of chapter two, and then I know we're going to go on, is that she says this, could it be true? She clutched the child so fiercely to her breast that it sent forth a cry She turned her eyes downward at the scarlet letter and even touched it with her finger to assure herself that the infant and the shame were real. Yes, these were her realities. And it's interesting to me because I think this is important to understand how she becomes such a healthy person. she, She doesn't run away from what's real. She forces herself to embrace as bad as it is I want to be in my reality. I want to understand truth. I want to know and I want to be really honest about this place uh, that I'm at. Is this an important thing to do? Yes, it's a very important thing to do. Um, anchoring yourself in reality is uh, a, a cornerstone of any kind of therapy. 
and it's a cornerstone of anybody being able to preserve an, a sense of identity that they can hang on to. And I find it interesting that Hawthorne is so able to detail this process of her psychologically centering herself and creating her identity and her own narrative about how she's going to talk to herself about herself. That's how she's going to withstand the onslaught of the shame that's going to be central to this. And one historical note I want to bring out regarding this, what's really interesting, Hawthorne is writing during the Romantic period in U.S. history. And the period before the Romantic period was basically the Enlightenment, which was about reason, logic, uh, cause and effect, scientific method, a downplay of emotion. And it gets followed up with the Romantic period of this time period where there's a lot of looking into oneself and into characters. And, of course, my understanding, too, is that Hawthorne was a little bit criticized in the beginning for the book being too detailed on emotion and, and looking too inward and being too dark. But he does well, he, a, it's a romantic novel, no he, doubt. He does an amazing job of portraying what a person does internally in the face of a, an onslaught. And I find it interesting. We're going to meet some of the other characters and their approach, in my mind, to dealing with their reality is very, very different, and, and so is their end. All right, chapter three is titled The Recognition, and who recognizes who? Well, we're going to find out. The next character we meet is this guy named Chillingsworth. He's a small man. Um, he's very old, and he's characterized because he has a shoulder, one shoulder that rises above the other. He's kind of got a deformity of figure. Uh, that stands out and makes him distinctive. Another thing that's interesting to point out is that he's described, um, well, it says this. At his arrival in the marketplace and sometime before she saw him, the stranger had bent his eye on Hester Prynne. It was a careless, carelessly at first, like a man chiefly accustomed to look inward into whom external matters are of little value and import unless they bear relation to something within his mind. Very soon, however, his look became keen and penetrative. A writhing horror twisted itself across his features like a snake gliding swiftly over them and making one little pause with all his, its wreathed intervolutions in open sight. His face darkened with some powerful emotion, which nevertheless he instantly controlled by an effort of his will. So all of a sudden he sees her and like a snake... He begins to change, which is interesting because a snake, of course, is an archetype for an adversary and always has been uh, in all of literature, even in biblical li literature. It's also a symbol for a doctor uh, as well, which we're going to find out that he actually really is. So he shows up and he looks at her and she looks at him and he's in the back of the crowd and he asks a guy, what's going on? And somebody tells her, oh, you're going to be so proud of our community. We don't allow sin here. This person has done something bad, but don't worry. We've taken care of it. Then he begins to explain in detail. She's been here for two years. She had this husband, and he sent her on. Uh, and we think, you know, no, nobody knows. Maybe he's at the bottom of the sea. But being unaccompanied, things happened, and now she's on the scaffold with a baby. Uh, and, of course, he um, begins to react uh, to this. And uh, he goes, well, who's the husband? And 
the man begins to tell him, well, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And he, of course, says, he will be known. He will be known. And we begin to see the foreshadowing of this is going to be, of course, the pursuit of this man's entire life. And why is it the pursuit of his entire life? If it isn't obvious by now, it should be that's Mr. Pren, the husband. Well, first of all, I'm going to have to do a spoiler alert. <laughs> and for those who haven't read the book, and we're going to assume that all of you have read the book already, uh, when I understood who a couple of these characters were and went back and reread it, it just it didn't take away from the surprise. What it added to was the depth of the intensity of the moment. And so, of course, we have to say that Chillingsworth, this guy that shows up in the back of the crowd while Hester is engaged in her public shaming, is her long-lost husband. And now he's observing his wife that he hasn't seen for the longest time standing up in front of this crowd for this this public uh, penance and... She's got a baby, and he has no idea what's going on. And I'm going to guess the average person would be very confused at that point as to what's occurring. And so he's going to play dumb, try to suss out in the crowd what's what's going on with this woman. It's interesting, though, that when they made contact, eye contact for the first time, he what the story says that he raises his finger and makes a gesture for her to hush. He knows immediately that he's not going to expose himself. He doesn't want the shame, I guess. I don't know. Is it shame that he doesn't want everybody to know that I'm the man she cheated on? I mean, why not? Why not just say, oh, that's my wife? Well, first of all, he has no, he has no context in the whole situation. And um, here's what I find out about Chillingsworth going forward in the book. Chillingsworth is a character that is highly intuitive, and he takes a lot of stock he takes. He does a lot of observation of what's going on around him before he does a lot of things. So he walks up on this crowd, and uh, his first reaction is to uh, go silent and study the group as to what they're doing. And we'll find out he has a habit of that later on. And so as he's getting perspective, his first reaction is to tell her to stay quiet. And, of course, if you have any degree of empathy, you need to get inside Hester's mind for a moment. Here she is enduring this three-hour public shaming, and then her long-lost husband shows up to see her with not his baby. I can't even imagine the wheels turning inside of her head at this moment as to what that would, what she'd be thinking. And if you're going to envision how this looks, you've got all the people on the ground, you've got Chillingworth in the back, and over to the side and hovering over them are the dignitaries. Now, there's three main dignitaries here. We have the governor... Bellingham, who's kind of described out the book as this pompous guy. He overdresses. He dresses things that are expensive. Uh, Hester makes a lot of things for him, ironically, uh, because no one's, everyone else is supposed to be dressed very plainly. There's this guy named Mr. John Wilson, who's the eldest clergyman of Boston. He's a scholar. And then, of course, there's the young clergyman, Reverend Dimsdale. Uh, and he's described as very intellectual, very eloquent, uh, almost, I mean, striking, uh, but weak, melancholy eyes, tremulous. He has a nervous sensibility from the very beginning. 
He's apprehensive. He has a startled. He has a half-frightened look. He's standing up there afraid, and you have to wonder, what do you have to be afraid of? But then maybe you do have something to be afraid of. And Dimsdale and Wilson are going to engage in a discussion uh, with Hester to where they demand that she confesses who the husband is. What do you think? This is where I have to give the second spoiler alert (laughs) at this point. And, of course, to the uninitiated like me, it's important to understand that Dimsdale is the father of the child. Now, as the father of the child and the pastor of the church and the person in charge of her soul, you can automatically see where all the double binds are going to to exist. And so this Magistrate Wilson has used force and power and intimidation to try to get Hester to confess as to who the father is. And then he turns to Dimsdale and says, as her spiritual advisor, as her spiritual mentor, as a person who cares for her soul, See if you can get the information out of her as to who the father is. So, again, I'm imagining this conversation where the man who is the father is in front of the crowd. And he now is going to tell Hester, confess to who the father is. I just cannot even imagine the existential double binds going on in the minds of all these people at this moment. And, again, I want to point out, to me, not being a non-literary person, that's the genius of Hawthorne as I'm reading it. The young bastard's voice was tremulous, sweet, rich, deep, and broken. So he begins to talk, and it's so full of emotion. It's so full uh, with sympathy that the baby holds up its little arms and just kind of murmurs, like a kitten-like noise, which is interesting. We're going to meet Pearl later, and and you're going to see the kind of little girl that she turns out to be. She's clearly wise upon beyond her years and even for a three-month-old she intuitively feels and senses something coming from this man and of course he talks to her and he doesn't tell her not not to say anything he says woman uh well mr wilson says woman trans not transgress not beyond the limits of heaven and she, he sa- and she looks at him and says, never, I'm never going to tell, I'm never going to tell. And then she looks straight into the eyes of Dinsdale, and she says, um, it is too deeply branded. Ye cannot take it off, meaning Dinsdale can't take it off. There's nothing you can do. You can't take it. You can't help me. W- and would that I might endure his agony as well as mine. And so we can see that she loves him and she doesn't want to expose him because to expose him is to kill him. They, they would kill him. And of course, people yelling out, speak, speak, speak. And she says again, I will not speak. And my child must seek a heavenly father. She shall never know an earthly one. And of course, Dimsdale leans over and says, she will not speak. And when he does, he puts his hand upon his heart, and he never basically takes it off for the rest of the book. Wondrous strength and generosity of a woman's heart, she will not speak. And to that, of course, Wilson drones on for an hour or more, talking about sin and horrible and how she's 
you know, everything that we don't want to be in the whole wide world. And, of course, the baby just starts screaming and wailing and flailing, very different than, uh, than when um, Dimsdale spoke. Well, what I find very interesting about this application, especially from the, the psychology perspective, is that every time anybody speaks, they have a text and they have a subtext, and Hawthorne is really capturing this text and subtext between Dimsdale and Hester. They're speaking in front of the crowd, but at the same time they're speaking only to each other. And it's interesting as the reader, once you understand that Dimsdale is the father, then I can begin to understand, oh, they are communicating subtextually all kind of information. And one of the things that stood out to me that I thought that was interesting is in their conversation, Dimsdale says to her, heaven has granted thee an open ignominy, that thereby thou mayest work out an open triumph over the devil within thee and the sorrow without. In other words, Dimsdale, I felt like, was also saying, I am not in a position where my sin is open and I'm suffering because of all the tension and the the pain that it's causing other people. You, even though yours is public, you're going to be set free from it. I just thought that was an interesting point. Well, it's not just an interesting point. You've picked up on the most important theme in the whole book, from my perspective. I know that's arguable. Uh, Yeah, he's talking about the Puritans. He's, He's condemning their judgment. But more than that, we're going to see what happens to people who have secrets. Does a secret hold some sort of power over you? We all have secrets. We have things that we're ashamed of. We have things that uh, we're embarrassed by. And how do they how do they have a hold on us? And how do we handle uh, the pressure that comes from a secret, and especially an embarrassing one? And you're right. He looks at her, and he almost is like he's saying, I wish I were you. There's, I can see where this is going, and it's you're going to be better off than I am. And, yeah, I think that's clearly the subtext. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, before we leave Chapter 3, we, I want to talk about these two secrets. So Hester's not even off the scaffold yet, and she's got these two huge secrets with Chillingsworth and Dimsdale. And so you've got this subtextual internal dialogue going on with these main characters while a whole entire crowd is cluelessly watching the drama that's going on. Well, that's true, and both of them, both of those men are going to pay a price uh, for creating the secret that they created. Chillingworth with his little put his finger over your mouth, don't say a word move, and Chilling and Dimsdale speaking bravely as the minister to the uh, unrepentant sinner. Well, and I want to throw another historical note in, too. Um, obviously, at the time he's writing this, uh, there has been a lot of... Uh, feminist movements in the United States up to that point and and suffrage movements and things of that nature. Do you think that's why he made Hester such a strong character at this time period and actually in the process defending men? I don't know. You know, I love Susan B. and Lizzie Cady. They're my faves. Uh, I've never thought about that, why he made her a woman. Maybe it's because... I'm I'm a feminist, so don't I don't want to lose my feminist credentials here. But I think he sees them as weaker, and he's contrasting weakness and strength. Maybe she's gonna come at the beginning. She's in the weaker position. She's the one that's taking the blame. She's the one that's got caught. She's the one that society is judging. 
So she's clearly in a weaker position. She's lower physically than Dimsdale. Uh, he's up in the balcony. She's on the scaffold. Uh, she's going to have a, a lesser position in society than Chillingsworth, but she's clearly clearly going to going to be ending the story as the strongest of the three. And I think he's his point is, you know, what happens to people in adversity is largely under their control. Yeah, you may start off in a position of weakness. You may have all the wrong cards, but that doesn't mean you're going to end in the wrong place. Uh, in any in any situation, no one can say that for a Puritan, there's any worse place than on a scaffold. I mean, sexual sin in any American context is like the worst kind of sin that there is. And so I don't think he could have branded her with anything worse than adultery. Uh, that was conceivable at their time. And so, yeah, I don't know if, if this is about feminism. I'm sure there are articles that would say that it is. But it's certainly about weakness and strength and secrets. And on to that, jump into the revelation uh, or the discussion to where uh, Chillingsworth and uh, Hester talk about this. Chillingsworth figures out a way to get into the prison. He's a doc, and the baby's sick, basically. And he goes in there, and he has this potion to give uh, to Pearl. And he tells her to drink the potion, and she's like, are you going to kill the baby already? And he, of course, is going to say, no, why would I want to kill the baby? That's, like, the nicest thing I could do for you is to kill you. I would never do that. Uh, That would be nice. Uh, And then they begin to have a discussion about how they got to this place, and whose fault is it? Uh, and he has some opinions that are uh, kind of evolved about whose fault is it. What do you think about all that? That's what really was most fascinating to me about Chapter 4 was the honesty uh, of the discussion between the two of them about how they got into this mess. And he just comes right out and says, I have greatly wronged thee. Or she says that. And he says, we have wronged each other. Mine was the first wrong when I betrayed thy budding youth into a false and unnatural relation with my decay. In other words, he was saying I was a fool for basically thinking that at my older advanced age that my intellect and my learning would captivate a young, beautiful girl. And now he realizes that uh, he asked way too much of her. She confesses she wasn't up to the occasion either and that she never did truly love him. But she says, I felt no love nor feigned any. So she told him she didn't love him when they got married. Okay. Well, they were, they were, <laughs> she was up front then about yeah, that situation. Yeah, I mean, he had something to offer. If you'd gone back and remember what he said when we were looking through her thoughts, her mother had died. She was very poor. He was in the big city. He had money. He was the best deal that she was going to get. She knew it. Uh, and so love, you know, would have been nice, but nobody's offering that. And this is the deal. And, and she took it, uh, which is interesting because when she had a choice of, of, of having that and having love, she forewent, she gave it all away uh, to be with Dimsdale, even though she was never going to be with Dimsdale. So he says, I seek no vengeance, plot no evil against thee. Between thee and me, the scale hangs fairly balanced. Which is a really interesting um, point for these characters for, the, for my side of the equation right here, to look at them and see that they uh, have come to peace in the middle of this cr- 
crazy situation. Kind of peace, but then he's going to extort her. And he says, and I don't, you cannot tell who I am. Uh, you can't tell anybody, not even the husband, uh, who I am. Uh, you just have to, the guy that you married has to be at the bottom of the sea. And of course, when she swears it um, to him that she's not going to tell, she, you know, she kind of feels like she's giving away her soul. So that's where they stand at this point. Now, Hester's got her two secrets. She's got Dimsdale and Chillingsworth. They've got, I can't call it a love triangle. It's a triangle that's super convoluted at this point with a lot of layers going on. And uh, then we move on into Chapter 5, which I think is a very interesting explanation of her psychology. And as you read Chapter 5, this is what stands out to me on the non-literature side. We get an explanation as to why Hester stays, because I would guess that the average reader at this point might be think she can leave and go back to Europe. She can move to another colony where she's not known. She has all kinds of options as to leaving this this shame and this scarlet letter, which leads to another point too. Why is she going to wear the scarlet letter? Many people would just not. They would go live somewhere away from the commune or from the community and not wear the letter. So some people might be asking at this point, why is she going to stay with these people and why is she going to wear the letter? That's true. Uh, and before we jump into why, because it does tell us why, I forgot about one thing I wanted to bring out. The very end of chapter four, it says this. Why does thou smile at me, inquired Hester, troubled at the expression of his eyes. This is after, you know, she agrees not to tell and he gets this evil look in his face. And she says, Art thou like the black man that haunts the forest round about us? Has thou enticed me into a bond that will prove the ruin of my soul? Every kid who ever has read this book stops here and says, who's the black man? Well, I want to clear up. There is no black man. There are no black characters in the story. There aren't any black people in this in Puritan New England anyway. So if the black man is not a human then you have to ask, well, who is it? And we begin to see this satire coming out of Hawthorne. This is really mocking the Christian faith because (laughs) this idea that there is a black man that's going to haunt the forest, and if you do bad things, then he's going to get you, or you're going to go out there and you're going to sign your name. No person would believe this is true unless they're so steeped in superstition that they believe irrational things that are told to them in the name of God. And he's going to come back to this criticism all throughout the book. And Mistress Hibbins, the witch, is going to just throw that in their faces also perpetually. So he's kind of got several criticisms going on. Uh, and, and these are just little motifs. A motif is something that just comes back. It's not part of the main story, but he never lets you get too far away from this idea that, oh, I'm going to mock these people. I'm going to talk about... Hester, I'm going to talk about our inner soul and shame, but I'm also going to make fun of Puritans as much as I possibly can. All right, let's talk about Hester. What do you you want to tell me about her? Hester at her needle, chapter five. Yes, this is to me the turning point where she begins to, or we begin to see why she's going to stay uh, in the midst of all this discomfort and unhappiness and things of that nature. And it, to me, uh, my understanding of reading it was she's choosing to stay for some very interesting reasons. And those reasons 
where he talks about how her pain is causing her basically to put down roots. Um, it says that the chain that bounds her here was of iron links and galling to her inmost most soul, but never could be broken. I found it very interesting that what he chose to do is to demonstrate that her pain and her suffering was what kept her there. And I thought that's a very interesting insight into humans because that's true for a lot of people. Uh, even people who sometimes end up in abusive relationships can feel that even the abuse itself is a draw and it's what, what keeps you in a situation that's not good for you. And well, she was comfortable, clearly. She had a place. She had an identity. It wasn't positive, but it was her. Well, that's a great discussion. And a discussion that many people have when they have a situation similar to this where there's a great deal of pain and shame and they have to make those decisions. Do I have enough courage to leave this? Is there enough payoff to leave or is there more of a payoff to stay? And so there is a cost-benefit analysis that people make in emotional situations. And she looked at this emotional situation with all of its pain and decided staying where she at least understood her pain and could identify it was what she was going to choose to do. And I think it's interesting that Hawthorne, I may be reading too much into it, but Hawthorne is basically saying she's making a choice to stay. Oh, clearly. There's another reason she stayed. Do you know what it is? What's that? She loves him. That Dimsdale guy? Yes. Oh, my She doesn't want to leave him. So she stays, but she can't be close to town. Now, remember I... I Last week I told you that nature is a character in the story, and nature is God. And just as nature is God, people are corrupt, and they're the center of of kind of evil. So Hester doesn't live with the people. She lives on the edge of town, the outskirts of town, right near near the wilderness or the forest. Now, who lives in the forest? We just learned who lives in the forest. The people think that the black man lives in the forest and he's going to make them sign their name in the blood and all that kind of stuff. Well, nature is the forest. And so the irony is that's where God is. So Hester, by leaving town, gets actually closer to nature, closer to perfection, closer to God than she ever would have been anywhere else. And, of course, everyone else is farther away from, from that. And she lives out there and she, you know, picks up this little practice uh, of needlepoint, and she makes a bunch of stuff, and she makes everything for every occasion except one. Do you know what's the one occasion they don't let her make for? Make stuff for? What's that? Weddings. Oh, okay. She can make for everything but weddings. Okay. <laughs> now, another thing that you have to point out, she makes um, dress dresses for another little girl, uh, and that's Pearl. And Pearl dresses really pretty she dresses in beautiful clothes uh and she is well the the book says that she is going to be the scarlet letter herself well before we go to pearl i want to back up just a little bit about hester in one part uh where we're looking at some of her inner workings about processing things and Anyway, it says what she compelled herself to believe, what finally she reasoned upon as her motive for continuing a resident of New England was half a truth and half a self-delusion. 
I thought, wow, what a great way to put this as you're looking at Hester's insights. What do you think that means? I'm going to get to that. Here, she said to herself, had been the scene of her guilt, and here should be the scene of her earthly punishment, and so, perchance, the torture of her daily shame would at length purge her soul and work out another purity than that which she had lost, more saint-like because of martyrdom. And I thought it was really interesting. He's also tapping into this basic human characteristic that that uh, is attracted on some level to martyrdom. Well, and I think you have to remember we're still steeped in the Christian t- tradition and this idea of penance. Maybe if I can just suffer enough, I will find grace. I will find forgiveness. Uh, it'll go away. If, if somehow, you know, the evil that I've done, the balance will finally come out. Uh, karma, you see this too. I can finally pay back uh, whoever it is that's keeping score and I can let it go and I'll be free. Well, I can understand that perspective, but the word martyrdom jumps off the page to me. Martyrdom is not any of that characteristic that you just described. Martyrdom is usually a sacrifice that's made in light of innocence. You are innocent, and you get sacrificed, and therefore you are the martyr, which is to me reads differently than the whole idea she hopes to get redemption. I just thought it was an interesting look into her character. Well, that's true. She's, I mean, does use that word, and and we'll see. I don't think that you know either one actually happens. We'll see what does she finally get. But she does stay, and she is going to transform herself for whatever reason into a positive community member, serving her community as she sets out to do. She says, um, you know, she says when you talk uh, that she is going to pray for her enemies, those people that were mocking her, she's going to serve them really for the rest of her life. Well, and I feel like at the very end of the chapter, we see a dawning of this idea of grace because Hester goes from feeling like she's the only sinner to being somebody who now is able to identify everyone as a sinner and even feel some degree of compassion for them. So it's really interesting that her isolation brought strength and her isolation from being an outcast from the crowd is giving her some degree of ability to extend grace to people who have sinned. So I find that's a very interesting development in her character. All right, chapter six, we meet Pearl. A lot of people don't know what to do with Pearl. You want to hate her because she's kind of rash, but then you kind of love her, and then you kind of feel sorry for her. Her name is in reference uh, to one of the Bible's shortest parables, Matthew 13, 45, and 46 where the Bible says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I did not find pearl very likable. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, as I, as I read this description, especially of Hester, she had a lot of parent talk, a lot of parent worries. And... Um, so, anyway, she goes on to describe that there's this, this impish, wild character that uh, I find very interesting. And I'm curious, from your perspective, why does Hawthorne paint her to be like this? Well, first of all, 
she cost Hester everything. And one of the questions that I don't know that Hawthorne really answers is, um, does she regret it? Because in the Bible, when the man finds the pearl, he sells everything he has and he and he buys it, purchases it with all that he has, and it's his only treasure. And clearly she's, uh, she is Hester's only treasure. And just like the pearl, she's perfect in every way, physically. There's no, there's no physical defect in her. She's beautiful. It says it, the infant was worthy to have been brought forth in Eden. Eden, of course, comes out of the book of Genesis. It's the garden of God, uh, worthy to have been left there for a plaything of the angels after the world's first parents were driven out. So she's beautiful. She's um, dressed in beautiful clothes. Uh, what do you not like about her? Well, there's one quote here. She never created a friend, <laughs> but seemed always to be sowing broadcast the dragon's teeth, which is a great saying, which sprung a harvest of armed enemies against whom she rushed to battle. She strikes me as a very confrontational child, and I understand she's isolated. Um, her only contact with the outside world really is her mother, so she's stilted in her connection to social relationships and things like that. That's absolutely right. It says that the child cannot be made amenable to rules. In giving her existence, a great law had been broken, and the result was a being whose elements were perhaps beautiful and brilliant, but all in disorder. And I like that because isn't that everyone? I mean, there is something beautiful about every single person in the world, but we're all in disarray and something has been broken and she's messed up. She's clearly messed up. And yeah, she has no friends and everything that she, she's has this inner rebellion again. She knows something's off and she's just fighting, 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 fighting. And she can't stop. Of course she has um, good reason. You're going to see that everybody else is kind of mean to her. Uh, but even when she's by herself, you know, her imaginary characters are not imaginary friends uh they're imaginary enemies of course you got to compare her to the puritans and again i he makes me laugh so much so she's out there fighting dragons uh the puritan kids they have these horrible games um they're going into town in chapter six and they see the children of the settlement on the grassy margin of the street or at the domestic threshold disporting themselves in such grim fashion. Uh, and this is what they're doing. Number one, they're playing at going to church. They're playing at scourging Quakers. They're playing at taking scalps in a sham fight with the Indians. They're playing at scaring with another with freaks of imitative witchcraft. That's horrible. And, of course, when Hester shows up, guess what she does? She throws rocks at them. <laughs> Those are some pretty aggressive child games. <laughs> They're horrible. They're absolutely horrible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's Pearl. And now that you've explained all that, I'm still not crazy about her. <laughs> well, you're going to be less crazy about her when you see what she does when uh, when Hester takes her to meet the governor in Chapter 7. Chapter 7, Pearl's three years old, 
and they have to go to the governor because they want to take her away. Uh, they feel like that uh, Hester is an unsuitable mother. So Hester is going to have this confrontation. She ta she's taken so much abuse from these people all these years, and it says there's fire in her, and she's not taking this. So they go in there, and they, they, they're about to enter into the beautiful governor's mansion. Uh, and we, right before they go in, if you haven't figured it out by now, Hawthorne clearly states because that Hester, that, that Pearl and the Scarlet Letter are one. Hester, well, Hester, Pearl is wearing red. The Scarlet Letter is red. Pearl can't. Uh, have any rules she can't follow rules the scarlet level the scarlet letter symbolizes uh, a rule and then he just flat out says there's the likeness of the scarlet letter running by alongside her come therefore and they're saying like that this is the kids are saying let's fling mud at her but Pearl, who was a dauntless child, after frowning, stamping her foot, and shaking her little hand with a variety of threatening gestures, made a rush at the knot of her enemies and put them all to flight. So this three-year-old little girl Rah! just kind of attacks the, the kids and chases them off. They go into the house. They're waiting to see the governor. And Pearl looks and says, well, let me just see this. Not Pearl, Hester looks at herself in a mirror. And, of course, in this time, there aren't very many mirrors. She wouldn't have seen herself at her own house. She doesn't know what she looks like. She looks at herself at the mirror, but because it's an old-fashioned homemade mirror, it's thwarted. And she looks at it, and her it's like going to the funny house. Her face is little, and her body's little, and the only thing that she can see is the A. So when she looks at herself... That's all she sees is the A. What do you think that means? Oh, obviously they're trying to highlight that, that that is now becoming her identity that she's trying to deal with. Not just her identity for the community, but it's uh, her identity for herself. Right. And that's really interesting. And again, that's the great point of Hawthorne writing this in 1850 and this whole idea of people having a self-identity and awareness of their self-identity and how they take that identity and transact business with the world and how that can positively or negatively impact them. It's amazing that he was able to develop all that. All right, in the final chapter, uh, chapter 8, we're going to have one more confrontation uh, between all the main characters. Dimsdale's there, the governor's there, Wilson's there, and somehow Chillingworth manages to find his way there too so the governor looks at little pearl and he says what have we here and he says i profess i have never seen the like since my days of vanity and old king james when i was wont to esteem in high favor at the admitted to a court mask there used to be swarms of these little apparitions in holiday time we called them children of the lord of misrule but how got such a guest into my hall and of course so she looks like a little imp to him and he's highly insulted and Mr. Wilson is going to say, uh, Ah, indeed, what little bird of scarlet plumage may this be? And he's going to call her an elf or a fairy. And she, of course, responds back, I'm my mother's child, and my name is Pearl. And, of course, they talk to her. 
uh, and they tell them that they're thinking about taking her away. And she basically says, they say, what can you thou, what canst thou do for the child in this kind? And she says, I can teach my little pearl what I've learned from this. And they're going to say, no, that's a badge of shame. And she says, yeah, but it's a badge of shame that teaches me uh, all the time. And of course, they're going to they're gonna say, well, then we're going to give her a question to see if she's got her religious instruction. And so they ask her, uh, little girl, Pearl, thou must take heed to instruction that so in due season thou mayest wear in thy bosom the pearl of great price. Can thou tell me, my child, who made thee? And of course, the narrator tells us, well, Pearl knew well enough who made her. For Hester Prynne, the daughter of a pious home, soon, very soon after her talk with the child about her heavenly father, had begun to inform her of those truths which this human spirit, at whatever stage of immaturity, imbibes with such eager interest. In other words, she knew what to say, but she looks at these old stodgy men, and she kind of goes, screw you. And so she looks straight up at them, and she says, um, I was plucked off the rose bush that grows by the prison door. And those of us who read chapter one, who are we talking about now? We're talking about Anne Hutchison. <laughs> it's amazing that a three-year-old child could be that cutting and that insightful and that historical. <laughs> oh, and of course, Chillingworth, he's, he can't stop himself. He's smiling because he's like, ah, ha, ha. And of course... This draws Hester's attention to him, and she notices, and this is what we're going to see, this evolution of his character, how much uglier he is. His dark complexion has gone duskier. His figure is now more misshapen than he used to be, and she realizes, you know, something negative has happened to him. And, of course, they've all about decided that they're going to take her away, and she goes, oh, no, you're not. God gave me the child. He gave me, he gave her in requital for all the things which you have taken from me. She is my happiness. She is my torture, nonetheless. Pearl keeps me here in life. Pearl punishes me too. See ye not, she is the scarlet letter, only capable of being loved, and so endowed with a millionfold the power of retribution for my sin. You shall not take her. And of course, she looks over at Dimsdale. And this is where, if you know, if you clearly understand that he's the baby daddy, she looks at him and she says, Speak thou for me. Thou wast my pastor and hast charge of my soul and knowest me better than these men can. I will not lose the child. Speak for me, thou knowest. And of course he does knowest, as the Bible would say. Very well. <laughs> In a biblical way. Thou hast sympathies which these men lack. Thou knowest what is in my heart and what a mother's rights are and how much the stronger they are when that mother has but her child and the scarlet letter. Look to it. I will not look lose this child. Look to it. And of course, he stands there pale, holding his hand over his heart, as was his custom. And of course, he's agitated and shaking but he gives a, a very eloquent defense of why she has the right to keep her child. Well, he's basically saying, okay, there's truth to what she says. God gave her the child. So God, if you take the child away, 
then you're basically saying that God made a mistake by giving her that child. So you're trying to usurp God himself. Uh, it must be even so, for if we deem otherwise, we do thereby say that the Heavenly Father, the creator of all flesh, has lightly recognized the deed of sin and made it of no account the distinction between unhallowed lust and holy love. It was meant for a blessing, for the one blessing of her life. It was meant, doubtless, as the mother herself hath told us, for a retribution to a torture to be felt at many an unthought of a moment, a pain, a sting, an ever-occurring agony, a red symbol. What do you think of that? Well, he finally turned on the, uh, the engines there. He came up with a compelling argument. And once again, I'm just struck by the text and the subtext. So we've got Hester and Dimsdale speaking to each other with a room full of people around listening, and they're speaking on two levels. And just the uh, the interplay is amazing going on between the two of them. And then you got to bring in Chillingsworth, because the moment that Dimsdale finishes this speech defending her, Chillingsworth, and I can just see them over there with his rubbing his chin, says, Hmm, you speak, my friend, with a strange earnestness, smiling at him. And here's the thing about Chillingsworth. This guy is intuitive. Now, intuitive doesn't mean you have a mysterious power. It just means you observe patterns in people's behaviors, and you observe the ebb and flow. In other words, he understood that there was subtext going on between the two of them, even though he didn't know what it was. So I like the fact that he's on the sidelines saying, you speak, my friend, with a strange earnestness. And then he goes on later on to say, a strange child remarked old Roger Chillingsworth, it is easy to see the mother's part in her. Would it be beyond a philosopher's research, think ye, gentlemen, to analyze that child's nature and from its make and mold to give a shrewd guess at the father? Yeah, so basically he wants to line up every dude in town and put up this child and say, let's see who you look like. Well, and he's also advocating the idea, I can plainly see her mother in her. I'm going to observe her other behaviors that are not like her mother and see if I can connect the dots to some guy in town. They shut him down, though. They're like, oh, no, we're not doing that. I do want to point out one more little thing, which is, is kind of sweet. So Pearl, who never has a friend, you pointed that out, fights the dragons, throws rocks at the, at the Puritan kids. When the minister stops talking, Pearl, that wild and flighty little elf, stole softly towards him, taking his hand in the grasp of both her own, laid her cheek against it, a caress so tender and so so tender and withal so unobtrusive that her mother looked and said, Is that my pearl? Because she'd never seen her show any tenderness to any other person. But she connects to Dimsdale. There's a thing there. I don't know I don't know what that is. Is that is that biological? <laughs> oh, we could argue that endlessly. <laughs> Who knows what Hawthorne meant, but he certainly is pointing out that there is some kind of, on some level, however you want to measure it, there's a connection between the two of them. And again, old Chillingsworth is watching that exchange also. And of course, it ends the chapter like it ended that the other chapter with this reference to the black man. Uh, they're getting ready to go home. She's won the day. Uh, and Hester says, make my excuse 
So please, you. She's running into Mistress Hibbins, and Mr. Hibbins is going, ha, 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 hist, hist, hist. Will you go with me tonight? There will be a merry company in the forest. I well nigh promised the black man that comely Hester Prince should make one. And she's going to say, you know what? I have to go home. But had they taken little Pearl from me, I would willingly have gone with thee into the forest and signed my name in the black man's book too, and that with mine own blood. And, of course, the witch lady is going to go, hmm, we shall have thee there anon. What do you think she means by the fact, had they taken my child, I would have... I would have gone to the devil. Oh, well, taking the child would have been her last straw of self-restraint. I mean, what on earth would have ever motivated her to to behave inside the cultural norms after that? She has nothing to lose. They've stripped her of her dignity. They've stripped her of her status. They've stripped her of a future in some ways. And the only relationship she's allowed to have is with this child. And if you take the child away, well, then, you know, all bets are off. She has no restraints anymore. And uh, I think that there are many, many mothers who could identify with that sentiment. That's true. So to kind of sum up what we looked at in these chapters in a few words and then look forward to what we're going to do next time, what I got out of it was... They brought in Dimsdale and Chillingsworth as characters. They've got a secret triangle going on with Hester. They've attempted to take Pearl away from Hester. It's brought out all kind of characteristics in all three characters. And now we have, uh, I think, what looks like a future confrontation brewing between, between Dimsdale and Chillingsworth. And then we have Hester in the middle knowing what all the sides are doing. What That's do you think? true, kind of. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, Chillingsworth. We're going to talk about Dimsdale. And then we're going to have our second scaffold scene. So if you're reading along or you want to read along, we'll probably cover chapters 9 through 17 of The Scarlet Letter. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 